Well, um, I hope you have an outline on your sheets there. Um, hopefully that will provide and give you a sense of where we're going, going to be going. There's a good introduction to give us an insight of the whole book, and then we'll get into some of the, the text later on. But let me begin, if I can, by asking the question, are you the kind of person that always completes a diet? Or, you know, are you the kind of person that starts an exercise program and sees it to its end? Maybe a project at work. Are you the completer, finisher type? Or, I guess, like many of us, we tend to compromise at some point. We never kind of finish it completely as we perhaps intend it. We long, to perfection. we long for perfection, but we really struggle to find it. Our intentions may be good at times, but there's that little niggle of unsatisfactory failure within all of us in some areas of our lives. And however much we gloss over it, whatever our successes in life, whether they be financial, whether they be relational within a family life or wherever it may be, We cannot get away from the fact that there are areas of our lives where we know that we've compromised to a degree. Even the most loving husband, even the most diligent uh, boss at work, uh, the most caring friend, they will all at some point, I guess, compromise. Oh, we see it in the practicalities of life. But I guess if you're anything like me, you also feel it in those daily spiritual disciplines. If you're anything like me, it's the snooze button again and again. Well, the book of Judges is all about compromise. The people of God, they they have good intentions, but they continually fail. They fail God, they fail themselves. Now, this could be possibly the most depressing book in the whole of the Bible, if that were the end. But Judges is not just a story of compromise. It's also a story of God's kind and generous and loving intervention into a compromising people. God steps in and does what they are unable to do. And that is the wonderful thing. Even if we're Christians here today, 3,000 or so more years on, we are people of which God has intervened in our lives by supremely sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, into the firing line of God's justice to stand between the, the judge and us as sinners. So that we might be set free. God has intervened into our history. And throughout the book of Judges we see this again and again. But now in these massive vivid pictures. So as you read Judges. I I guess understand as we go through it. It's a taster. It's a little foresight. It's a looking forward to that intervention. That great intervention of Jesus Christ into history. The book of Judges is a history of 12 judges. It spans a period of about 1350 BC to about, well, 1375 to about 1050 BC. You work at the Mass. It's a long time ago, basically. And the 12 judges, you'll be able to look through the pages and you'll see it's Othniel, Ehud. We'll look at those two next week. Then you've got Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jaya, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and the long-haired dude called Samson. Sorry, that's in the cartoon, which we'll show you next week. But yeah, he's, he's the, you, you know the story. Judges were, they were the tool that God used uh, for rescuing his people as he intervened throughout that history. Now, they're not the legal judges that we know, as we see you know, up in the courts, and you lawyers here, you know what they look like, and so on. No, we're not talking about that kind of judge. Judges were deliverers. They were leaders of God's people. 
There were 12, possibly, but only possibly, one from each of the 12 tribes. But that's um, a little bit, I'm not sure. But the judges were not a group of people that you would necessarily pick out. And you sort of go, oh, they're the 12 top guys. Now, actually, uh, remarkably, they're the people that God used. And yet they were all essentially unqualified for the task, even by Jewish standards at the time. One didn't want to do the job himself, that being Samson. One was the youngest child. One was illegitimate. One was a brutal maniac, to be honest. One was a woman. And that's controversial, I guess, but for a Jewish man at that time to be saved by a woman would have been socially very uncomfortable. See, the only thing that made these people ever fit for God's purpose to do the work that he'd sovereignly ordained for them to do was because God, in his kindness, came on them through his spirit and empowered and enabled them to be the leaders that he wanted them to be. And they achieved amazing things to God as God intervened. Now let me just uh, very quickly, I know these are the dull things, but we've got to the structure now. And hopefully it just gives you a picture. If you do have the opportunity to read it through, it gives you a little handle about where the book is heading. I guess it's 21 chapters, as you can see. It's funny at times. You wait for the big man with the big sword, you'll get the, you'll get the idea how funny it can be. It's exciting at times. It's encouraging. But the 21 chapters, I guess, are split into three major chunks. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, verse 6, which is what we're looking at today. The writer, again, speculation, but possibly Samuel, provides an introduction. And the big theme here is the military failure of Israel, as they went about. And you heard that, in that certainly in the first chapter. And then the major chunk of the whole book is chapter 3, verse 7, through to verse, um, chapter 16, verse 31. And that's the main body. And you see there God intervening and working through each judge, saving his people. But in each story, this same pattern or cycle goes through every single one. So firstly, we see God's people, they sin. They rebel against God. Then what does God do? God allows a raider, someone to come in, in his sovereign purposes, to triumph over God's people. They then cry out, they go, where is God? Or, why, God, have you done this? Provide something. And God provides, lovingly, a judge. And that leads them to, uh, delivers them to peace. For a while. So you get this cycle. The sin, the raider, the cries of God, the judge, and then the delivery to peace. And you'll get to the end, and, and you'll know that God, in his kindness has been patient and long-suffering with his people. And if you like, it's a, I guess it's a picture of my life, and probably your life too. As at times you turn to God and you've called out to him, and you've asked for provision, and he's provided kindly. But then you've neglected him again and again and again. The first section, if you like, showed that military failure. The second section shows the rescue by God's judges. And the third section, just the last bit, chapter 17 to 21. Yeah, it's not a great end. It's kind of just the moral failure of Israel. And the story doesn't have a happy ending. Why don't you turn with me to the last verse, chapter 21, and you'll get the picture there. Chapter 21, verse 25. 
In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Now just imagine, if you can, for a moment, what that would look like if just us bunch of people did as we saw fit. Every single one of us here. And then multiply that throughout a nation. It was chaos. The need is obvious within this land and within this context. And it would be for us as well. It should be for us. We need a king to intervene, to lead us, to lovingly guide us. Now the judges, they do a good job. But they keep dying. Which points us to our need for an everlasting loving king. So God, of course, does send his son, the Lord Jesus, who leads us to everlasting peace. Let's go on and let's look at the context if we can, uh, just in that third little introductory point. Before we get to chapters 1 and 2, note that Judges 1 deals with the, what, we now know, what we call the second movement of the conquest of Canaan. So the, that promised land. The previous book of Joshua, especially the first 12 chapters, uh, is the first move. They've, they've kind of taken that blitzkrieg kind of way of going in. They've done everything they can, and it's very, very quick. But Judges is more now the demarcation of the promised land. You're going to get that bit. You're going to get that bit. Think back. Moses has died before entering the land. So Joshua leads his people into the land. And, and there God has promised his people that he was going to help them win it. For it to be their place where God would rule. But before we ever dip ourselves into a book like Joshua or Judges, we must understand who the people are within Canaan before God's people went in. The Canaanites were... Uh, the most brutal people you could possibly imagine historically. And they've been given many, many warnings, loving, kind warnings by God to submit to him, to enjoy his kindness and blessing that they knew about through the God's people who had come into the land. But the Canaanites had again and again refused. They turned their backs on God. They knew what God had done, and yet they didn't want anything to do with him. Oh, they knew that he parted the sea and they enabled the God's people to feed for 40 years. And yet, no, they wanted nothing. And therefore, they would face the consequences. They wanted things their own way. And I guess you and I are very like that. And there may be people here like that all the time. Where we just say, I don't want anything to do with you, God. And for that, he's going to, they're going to face the consequences. So the Canaanites were now face to face with God and his people, having ignored their offer of salvation, essentially. They were going to face judgment, and it was going to be by the sword. But we do struggle with the brutality of this book. I'm, I'm sure we will as we go through it. One commentator put it this way, it was no more appropriate for the Israelites to leave the Canaanites living in the land than it would be for a surgeon to leave half a cancer in. 
Like, you know, you could say to a surgeon, oh, go on, just leave that half, you know, of, of cancer. Just be tolerant if you, can, if you possibly can. You know, leave it, to just, just compromise a little bit. You know, just don't chop out it all, you know. Let the cancer have its rights. Yeah, let it find itself within the body, you know. And so, no. Tolerance and suicide are congenial bedfellows, one scholar put it. God's land was the place of his presence and blessing. And today we are that place as we wait for the eternal home of God's people, the final resting place. And all too often, if you're anything like me, we leave those cancers in. We're not wanting to rid ourselves, but rather we compromise, thinking, oh, let's just cut back on a particular sin and not fully chop it out. Weeks or months later, we look back and we see that the cancer surprisingly has grown. God's people were to get rid, uh, uh, rid the land of rebellion. The Canaanites were essentially were to go. This is not random bloodshed. This is God bringing his justice to a rebellious, hostile people. And the point is, I don't want us to see this is distant and removed. It's essentially all of us, without the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, deserve that sort of judgment. See, the motivation was not pragmatic, but spiritual. They're to get rid of the cancer in Canaan, God's place. So let's pick up the story, if we can, in chapter 1. Let's cast our eyes down, look at the couple of verses. We're going to move quickly through. As the people moved into the promised land, our first point there. They asked the Lord, don't they, in verse 1, who's going to go first against the Canaanites after the death of Joshua? God commands in verse 2, it's going to be the tribe of Judah. Judah then asks in verse 3, can the Simeonites come with me? And they go together, they have numerous victories. And you kind of think, whoa, this is great, all exciting, everything's going well. Because the context is war though, understand and appreciate this is not weakness on the people of Judah. They've not turned to the Simeonites and go, and go oh, I'm a bit frightened about it. No. Notice that mutual assistance there is not weakness. These are like excuse the D-Day pun, but it's kind of like these band of brothers, they were tribes depending on each other. And, and only then do they begin to fathom the awesome strength of God in their weakness together. And I guess there's a point there, I think, the selling point for us as, as a church really, we're not to be alone. We're not made or created to be, oh, let's do this Christian life on my own. Isolation is not healthy for any of us. The breakdown of society that we see around us is, is not healthy. Christians can never experience the true love and strength of God in isolation. But God, God always works through a community of believers, building us each other up as we show love and strength through each other, his strength. Now, our culture may tend the other way towards isolationism and individualism, but the Bible speaks of a corporate fight of a church building one another up. I guess, why do we do that sometimes? Why do we default to, all right, we feel a bit low, let's do things on our own? Why? Maybe because we underestimate the scale and the, the severity of sin in each of our lives. And the necessity that we have for each of us around here to, to graciously, lovingly be able to say, hey, come on, and be able to call someone up on something. We grow quicker and, and deeper when we work together, helping each other. 
to play and experience uh, the strength of God as we do so. So the Judah, Judah and Simeonites, they move in and they advance with the Lord, that first little sub-point there. Look at, that, look at how it goes, uh, follow with me through the verses. They strike down the Canaanites at Bezek in verse 4, Jerusalem verse 8, Negev verse 9, Hebron verse 10. And up to verse 19, it's all kind of, they keep going in, hey, great battles, it's all exciting, everything's working. Remember, this is, as the scholars call it, theological geography. God is clearing a land here. This is not random bloodshed, this is justice. And the Bible never claims that these kind of conquests ought to be palatable. They ought not to be palatable. They ought to be very difficult to hear. This is frightful stuff, but it's big picture of what God's judgment really looks like. We would do well, I guess, to be frightened of this justice for a time because we are all deserving of it. It's only through God's intervention in Christ that we have avoided it. I deserve that sort of judgment and justice that you see here. And all of us do. But Christ took it for us. Now, why don't you turn to verse 4. You see that there, 10,000 men were slaughtered at Bezek. But in verse 5 and 6, you begin to see just the little glimmers of compromise. Adonai Bezek there, the pagan king, is treated in the same way. I know it's a bit gruesome. But look at it. He's treated in the same way that he's treated his captives. We've seen news of that in, in years gone by of British and US soldiers, you know, in Iraq, treating prisoners of war there on a few occasions, you know, torturing, mocking and, and stuff like that. It's, it's not good. It's disgusting. It devalues our, our armed forces. But the cutting off of Adonai Bezik's thumbs and big toes show that God's people are beginning to act like unbelievers. The cancer is spreading, if you like. But do note, actually, in verse 7, it's really interesting. Adonai Bezek understood it as God's justice. Do you see that? Not random bloodshed. Again, the northern tribes seem to be start with a similar pattern. Verse 24, well, sorry, verse 22, it says the Lord was with them. Things are going well. Likewise, they advance as they trust God and his word. But wherever you look in chapter 1, whether it's the Judah or the Simeonites in verse 21 and the house of Joseph and the northern tribes in verse 22 to the end. Wherever you look, after initial success, what do you get? Compromise. You get to verse 19, you see that God's people are beginning to struggle to get the job done. Throughout Judges, this one little word that crops up again and again and again. And I guess it might be in your life too. It's in my life a lot and it's a small word and it's the word but. Look at verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. Oh, they were able because the Lord was with them. But they have compromised and they, they began to keep people as trophies of war. The second half of chapter one is littered with all of this compromise. Tribe after tribe failed, didn't they? Did you notice that as, as Neil was reading it through? They compromised and they failed. They compromise and they fail. They, they turn some into forced labour. They fail to get rid. They fail to do the job. See, the picture of chapter 1 of Israel is that God's people are in substantial control of Canaan. Clearly successful, but disobedient. They know pragmatic success, but they're spiritual failures. See, it's very interesting, isn't it? You, you may have come to church for years. 
decades, some of you. And on the outside, in the eyes of the culture, maybe in the eyes of the church, you may seem like a great success in so many ways. But it is possible, isn't it, for people who come to church to be outwardly demonstrating success. But that is not necessarily the same, isn't it, as pleasing God. It may seem harsh, this, but it, it may seem that chapter one has been like, oh, you had a good try. And God's people, you know, need a bit of a pat on the back. They give it their best. But please do understand the decline here. They began faithful. And by the end, they're unfaithful. And then weak. And they sit down with the Canaanites. And essentially, by the end of chapter one, they are indistinguishable from everyone around them. You can imagine their excuses. Oh, it was just too hard. We couldn't do everything. Oh, we came to an arrangement with the Canaanites on these particular issues, a compromise. You see, the Israelites would say, you know, God is Lord. uh, But they weren't living as he was king, Lord, over every area of their lives. They still had the, the practices of their religion, prayers and sacrifices. But in reality, they were just becoming increasingly disobedient. What seemed as a kind of a reasonable compromise with God at the beginning became lethal. But that's what compromise is, isn't it? And that's what it does. I, I guess you just think back to a, perhaps a tiny you know, a sin in your life you know, a few years ago, which you thought, oh yeah, it's just a small thing. And you compromised on it and you, sort of, you kind of let it go. You humid it. And then after a few months, and after a few years... It's very easily accommodated and justified in our lives, isn't it? And so what does God do? He sends them a warning. They're warned by God in the beginning verses of chapter 2. Look at that, verse 1 to 5. And God's warning went a bit like this. I've brought you out of Egypt into the promised land. We had an arrangement, a covenant, he declares there. I've kept my part, but you've broken your part. And so the sins that you have accommodated on, you have compromised on, They're going to become a curse for you, essentially is what he's saying. And look at verse 4. It's really interesting of chapter 2. The people wept. But they're not tears of repentance. They're tears of just stubborn unhappiness. They weren't concerned about anyone but themselves. Now tears, of course, are usually a good sign of repentance, I guess. and, And probably should happen in our stiff upper lip British culture more than they do. John Stott once wrote this, we're either too sophisticated, too refined, or too hard-hearted, or what's worse, all of these to cry over our sins. But God is firing a warning shot over their bowels here. And the question is, I guess for us today, is will we listen? Or will we keep compromising? Will God's people turn back to him in obedience? Or will they just continue? Well, we get to chapter 2 here. Why don't we have a look at it now? Let's have a look at the time. I think what I'll do is I'll just point out verses, and perhaps you can read the uh, chapter when you get home. I think that probably is the the most helpful thing. So we get to our our second uh, point there. The people increasingly forgot God. A much quicker point here. Uh, Chapter 2, I guess, is like a, a quick walk through the generations of God's people. 
in the promised land. So look at verse 6, if you can, with me. In verse 6 and 7. After Joshua dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Verse 8, Joshua died, you see there. Verse 9, they buried him. And that is like the end of the first generation. They were faithful. But what about the second generation, you say? Let's get to verse 10. You see it's there. After that whole generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And you might say, isn't that more typical of what we see today? The time has gone when people perhaps know the Christian faith. Uh, many people would, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they would all have understood what the Christian faith was, whether they rejected it or accepted it. But for today, in Britain, we are nearing a pagan culture. And people are hostile to the Christian faith. But now, in ignorance. That is, uh, I put on your sheets there, they, they did not know the Lord. People are now saying no. I mean, as you invite them to services, as you invite them to come and hear more about the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it interesting how many of our friends will say no to what they don't know? It's not that they understand the Christian faith and say, no, I don't want to hear about it, thank you very much. But they're saying no, and I don't care. No, and I don't want to engage in a conversation about it. Because I don't want to know what you know. And that's what we're seeing here. People are saying no to what they don't know. And that's the second generation. And it's so relevant to us. They don't know what the Lord has done for them. So, as we see on the second point, they worshipped other gods. And how attractive can that be? We may laugh at their gods. Baal seems foolish. As you read through that chapter, you'll see the kind of, kind of sacrifices that they make and the, kind of the rituals that they, they participate in. They might seem a little bit silly to us, but take away the different cultures and the practices of worship. We have very similar uh, kind of uh, practices that dig into the morality of our culture. Baal was very seductive. I mean, read about it later in chapter 2, but he's very seductive and attractive because Baal promised prosperity and success uh, in agriculture with smatterings of pleasure as well. Imagine if we could say that to the banking industry or to the IT industry or to the lawyers or to the doctors. You know, there was something that you could worship and it was attractive and, and that kept you going if you were to give offerings to it. And we'd throw in a few kind of temple prostitutes as well, which is exactly what they would do with Baal. If you were to sleep with a few prostitutes, then that would instigate him to shower down more rain on your crops. It was a very convenient kind of religion. Now, the gods of our culture may not be wooden statues, but the hedonism and the materialism are subtle derivations on a kind of theme, aren't they? The method of worship may be different, but immoral pleasure and outcome is the same. Well, what does God do? Well, he expresses his appropriate and jealous anger, but also he would show his compassion. As with Noah, where there was a flood of judgment, there was an ark of salvation. As with us, as we face God's judgment, but we have a, a glorious, undeserved saviour, so too with these generations of God's people. In the days of the judges, God would send in these raiders into, into the people in judgment. And then he would save them and draw his people back to himself. In love, he would deliver them to save them. 
So now look at verse, um, verse 19, if you can. And there we get to generation 3. And things get worse. As soon as uh, the, the judge died, the people returned to their ways. But with each generation, they turn more quickly away. As we go through the book of Judges, uh, essentially it's a spiral going down and down and down. And each generation gets worse and worse and worse. And it's a sad reminder of, to all of us who either now or in the future may have children. We must teach them of the Lord. And we must show them our Saviour. And what do the children see in us today? Do they see as, as they look at, around our church? And I don't just mean parents here because my boys don't really look up to many of the parents. They look to some of the younger guys and they say, I want to be like them. What do they see? Do they see guys obsessed with their money and obsessed with their houses and their cars? Or, or do they see godly guys giving up of themselves to serve God's people, to make Christ known? I guess wonder what my children, wonder what the children of this church see as the priorities of all of our lives as adults. I know the pressure is enormous, but if you ignore teaching children, our children of God, then all they will see is our desires for everything else. So as the generations, as you go through them in Judges, what happens is in the end they're disciplined by the Lord. The cycle became embarrassing. You get the sin and then the raider comes in in judgment. They cry out to God and God provides the judge, the delivery to peace. It's embarrassing. It happens again and again and again. But I have to say, as I've been reading Judges, I just need to look in the mirror. And I see a similar situation. There's compromise and there's judgment. There's nothing wrong with living in the world, but... Then what they did is they welcomed the world into them. They moved from faithful to weak and indistinguishable as God's people so quickly. And it begins with these tiny, small compromises. But be warned, because God cannot ignore that in his love. As one of God's children, judgment will ultimately be taken by Christ in your place. But God loves his children so much that judgment may also be known through discipline and hardship today. So be warned and clean out the whole cancer as you examine your hearts and lives today. And do it with the help of others who love you in a community of grace. When we compromise on hearing God speak through his word, our, our religious, our spiritual nature always grabs a vacuum. So we go for the most attractive and we just find ourselves following other gods around us. Other pleasures rather than finding our true pleasures in Christ. But we need Christ and we finish here. And the whole book of Judges just points us to this very reality that hits all of our lives. It hits it. We need a saviour. As the people of God in the time of Judges showed, by ourselves we fall into sin. We allow the cancers of our lives, our sins, to spread, don't we, in our hearts, and our minds. We compromise. We fail. So how great is our Lord and our God? How most worthy of praise is he? Because he intervenes 
And he has intervened for you and for me through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has died on the cross for our spiral of sin, if that is us. Uh, He's the one who's taken the sword of judgment on himself on the cross. And our job, our responsibility, our privilege, our joy, the great blessing is to give our lives in honour of that and not to spiral downwards but rather become more and more Christ-like, to spiral upwards, if you like, to that day when we meet him, perfected in his righteousness, face-to-face in glory. This is a sobering picture, isn't it? But it's a picture that should draw us and point us ultimately to Christ and then point us to the final day when we meet him face-to-face. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, if I'm sure all of us, after a passage like that, need to examine our own hearts and minds. Help us not to be arrogant. Help us to humbly come before you and be open and frank where we need to admit our own sin. Help us not leave it another day, another hour, where that sin that's been in our lives for years has not been challenged by your word and your spirit. Please help us not to be like the the Israelites were here, continually compromising, indistinguishable from the people around us. Help us to be beacons of light for the gospel, I pray. That people might uh, know and see the Lord Jesus Christ in us, individually, but also as a community of believers. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.